welcome to the Burnup Podcast, where we discuss all things agile software development and delivery. We will be giving you an honest take on tools and techniques. We'll share our experiences, debunk myths, and hopefully provide needed inspiration. Hi, I'm Todd Anderson, Consultant Delivery Manager. I've done just about every job in IT, from tech support, programmer, network security, project and program management. I can't say I've done everything, but I've seen a lot. And I'm Marcel Britsch, digital consultant, business analyst and product owner. I've worked in digital before this even had a name, and since have been quite a bit around the block. And this is my way of giving back to the industry. So sit back, relax, and settle in for this week's episode. A quick note before we start, this is the final part of a two-part series about learnings we can take from the space industry. In episode one, which we recommend you listen to now if you haven't done it already, we mainly talked about Apollo 11 and the Netflix documentary with the same name and Andrew Chaikin's Management Lessons of the Moon program, which you can find on YouTube. Both again, highly recommended. However, in this episode, we move on in time and we'll talk about the Challenger disaster. This was inspired by us listening to the You're Wrong About podcast by Sarah Marshall and Michael Hobbs. And I just wanted to say how grateful I am to Sarah and Michael for doing their amazing podcast, where they look at varied stories across economy, technology, social life, culture, and our perception of what really happened, and then challenge that and in many cases set it straight. It's my favorite podcast, and I really suggest you check it out. Link is always in the show notes. So I think the next thing we're probably going to talk about is the Challenger disaster in that podcast. I've listened to this a number of times because I um, I think there's really interesting learnings in it. Challenger disaster was in 1986, and we've linked uh, one of the YouTube videos about the disaster in the show note, where basically the Challenger spaceship, 73 seconds after launch, disintegrated and killed everyone on board. And um, what they found was that after there was a subsequent investigation, or actually a number of investigations, one by the so-called Rod Commission, uh, led by a guy called Rogers, which also included Richard Feynman. Neil Armstrong as well. Neil Armstrong, Neil Armstrong as, well. as well. So it was the who is who of engineering and spaceflight was on that commission. And they came up with a 200-page exact summary, a 1,000-page report, and 200,000 pages of evidence. And basically what they found was that the root cause was an O-ring, which is this, a seal that is in the side rockets, the booster rockets. Uh, they're, they're assembled out of three parts, and they're basically stuck into each other and uh, sealed with these o-rings and some jelly sealant and because of the low temperatures at the time of the launch of that specific launch there was a small leak and that created some instability in one of the booster rockets and that led to disintegration so tiny 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 thing yeah well you know what those guys from florida you know i'm from wisconsin and i could have told them that rubber does not (laughs) behave well in the winter it gets stiff and it is definitely not rubbery i don't i don't know you know maybe they didn't have enough midwesterners on the program at the time. So, so Richard Feynman makes exactly that point with a glass of ice water and an O-ring in the, he- in the committee hearing. Um, it's really funny. So we've linked to it. It's, it's worth looking at it. Oh, I, have to, I haven't watched that. I need to watch that. It's funny. He's yeah. a very smug bastard. Trust me. He's yeah. I, smug. I, I, who doesn't love Richard Feynman? <laughs> no. You gotta love Richard Feynman. Great. Exactly. I, I actually do have a personal, uh, like, so... I, you know, I, I know that I think in the early in the podcast, like people say like, well, maybe 
people think they saw this live and, and actually they didn't. Actually, I'm positive that I saw this live. And the reason is... Oh, wow. Okay. The reason this flight was famous is that Chrissy McCullough the, yes. the, was going to be the first civilian teacher in space. Yeah. And my teacher wanted, wanted to be part of that program. So... Oh, wow. So she applied and she was, you know, a space fanatic. I definitely remember watching, you know, they rolled out a, a TV and we were sitting in the hall watching this live. And uh, yeah, it was terrifying. My teacher, I remember, yeah, I was very wow. upset about it. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, I was only a kid at the time, of course, but it, it, it's not the type of thing you forget. So Yeah, wow. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, let me tell you what they found because it's really interesting because they tried to understand, of course, they found quite quick the actual root cause of this. But then the question was, why was this not caught, right? NASA being NASA. And so there are three different investigations I want to talk about. So the Rogers Commission, they basically focused on that this is an event that's basically, again, like a black swan. So it's something that's low probability, extremely high impact, and you can't really foresee these things. But what's interesting to your point about the O-ring and cold temperature, where you said, I know this thing about rubber and cold temperatures, this wasn't something that they didn't know about. They, they knew about this. They had known about problems with this before. Basically, whenever they launched one of those rockets, the boosters would come back, fall into, into the sea, and would be reused. And every time they had a 30% degradation on those O-rings. So this was a known problem. They were just like, well, 30% degradation, 70% safety margin were good, which is a, a weird way to argue anyway. But what they found was that the night before the launch, there was a, um, a phone call between NASA and a Morton Fiocol, who is the subcontractor building those boosters. And on that call, the subcontractor suggested that they do not launch. But then the problem was that NASA being so scientifically minded was that they were like, give us evidence that you should not launch. And they're like, we, we haven't got the figures because we've never launched so cold. We haven't done any tests with that temperature, but we feel it's wrong. Uh, but because they didn't have the numbers, they got overruled by management. Yeah, you could say it's evidence-based. You could say that that's true. Like it is an evidence-based organization, but at the same time, they're almost being too dogmatic about yeah. the unknown. So it's a lack of information. You know, not knowing something is not a substitute. Yeah, I was thinking about this. There is a, a saying, I can't get it together, but it's like the absence of evidence isn't the... So we did look this up afterwards. It's the so-called argument from ignorance. And the aphorism is absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, which kind of makes sense. And I think it's a little bit that, right? On the basis of not having information, they should have possibly said, we'll pause this, rather than saying we don't have evidence to the contrary. So, so what the Rogers Commission also found was that this was managers at level five in the, in the hierarchy, and they only told their managers maybe at level up, but that information got never relayed. Even the knowledge of this meeting ever happening was never relayed to the management uh, at the top, who would have maybe made a different decision. So the narrative that came out of the Rogers Commission was it was wrong decision-making and wrong flow of information and mi middle management doing this wrong. Right, That was the entire narrative. And NASA subsequently transferred all managers, even those who had objected to other companies or demoted them, and were basically saying, look, it was a middle management problem. We, we need to solve this by restructuring. We'll see later that that didn't solve the problem at all, and also that that wasn't actually the real cause of, of the problem. But it was also interesting that Richard Feynman, he did additional analysis because he felt they, they weren't thinking big enough and there were actually loads of other problems. So he found there were four additional faults, not just the O-ring thing. And he believed it wasn't actually a middle management problem. It was in fact a problem of the people setting and defining the processes within which the middle management then acted. I think there was another one which you thought was interesting around risk assessment and how they were thinking. Yeah, there's another thing from the Feynman report. The way we think about risk and, and risk calculation is kind of skewed. Going back to your O-ring example, like, okay, if the 30% of the O-ring is disintegrated, 
then, oh, hey, it's okay because 70% of it's there. And one of the points to make of the podcast is sort of like, that's not how you think about risk. It's not like, you know, if, if a bridge has 30% breaking, you know, you stop, you don't drive over that bridge, right? <laughs> like, I mean, I think the point you were alluding to was, was around engineers saying, we think there is a one in thousand chance of this going wrong. And managers would have said there is a one in 100,000 chance of this going wrong. And that already shows that the further you're away from the from the problem, the less risk-averse you are, right? And Yeah, and, and to tie this back to our Apollo 11 conversation, you know, this is that whole thing about how in high reliability organizations, the optimum solution can win. It's that deferring to expertise yeah. mentality. And if that's what definitely broke down here, right? Like if we would have deferred to expertise, the people who actually know about the O-ring, the people raising the issues, you know, you wouldn't have that middle management layer or this like sort of process and, and bureaucracy that would be in the way of it. You know, you could have that sort of direct channel, like anybody, having anybody be able to pull the assembly line, you know, type mentality. No, this is really interesting you say this, and I totally agree, but I'll tell you now about a second investigation done by the House of Representatives in 1986 about the Challenger disaster, and that basically negates everything we've heard about NASA or the state of what NASA was at the Apollo 11 uh, mission, because what they found was that it's kind of a myth that middle management were the bad ones in the sense that, first of all, the RFP for the rocket boosters was purely based on price, right? So there is this really funny, I need to read this to you. In the RFP, the third sentence, apparently, they say in the podcast, says, it is imperative in all considerations of the proposal that effort be made to minimize production and operating costs while maintaining reasonable design performance and re reliability specification. That's a bullshit yeah, sentence. But, well, yeah, I, I mean, like, I, I thought they were a bit harsh. <laughs> Here, really? to be fair, because well, like I've worked, I've worked for government before, and it's like, of course, you're going to say, you know, try to reduce costs, and it and, is. But I think you, you know. would have flipped it on its head. You would have said, it's important for us that it's reliable, and of course, you need to be reasonable about cost. The way it's worded is very strongly on cost, and also then remember they had four suppliers offering, and they chose the cheapest. That to me again sounds a little bit like, come on, guys. Yeah, that's a classic government move. Like, really? right? Yeah, yeah. It, it's hard. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's just a shame because having worked in government, it's definitely sometimes you can't get away from that, right? Because you're you're spending taxpayers' money. You and I have in, seen in, this. In, in, in theory, if if they respond to the RFP and they're all judged to be worthy of of being able to perform the task, then of course you have to take the cheapest one because you know that's the best deal for the taxpayers. So, like, I can totally see why this happens. And I, I is it right? Is it wrong? I don't know. I agree with you. You're, you're referring to the DOS platform, right? A government procurement platform in the UK, where it's basically all these services on the platform are, by definition, commodity services, and you choose by price. Yeah, right. And I, I agree with that, and I understand what you're saying, but at the same time, I feel like the world has maybe become a bit more complicated than just... Even like a designer, UX designer, they do the same job. They create the same artifacts, but are they really the same to go by price? Do you, I, th I think it's, it's more nuanced yeah. than that. And right, right. There's a reason why there's a phrase, you get what you pay for. And yeah. that's true to an extent. But then also, you know, there's also the giant consultancies out there that charge an arm and a leg and they're just, you know. They have taken the government for uh, a ride know, they, in the UK. Yeah, they, yeah. they kind of do a bait and switch where they bring in heavy duty people to make the sale and, and maybe to set up the, the project and then do a bait and switch and put juniors on it and 
whatnot to, to cut costs and still charging them out at, you know, a thousand pounds a day or whatever. Like, I, I, like, yeah. like uh, it, yeah, God, it, this is such a complex thing. Oh man, it's, it's hard. We could probably do a whole podcast on that itself. You know why I think this is a kind of true thing. We'll see. Let me talk you through the other things they found and you'll sure. see why, why maybe there is something to this. So the second thing was uh, not related to the cost thing, but they found that the O-ring problems were known to NASA since 1979, 10 years nearly, right? And there was no innovation and it was always, apparently the thing was always the answer was like, kind of works, we have no time, we have no money to sort this specific problem out. So that's another thing, right? And then the third thing was that apparently, this is also really funny, you'll, you'll enjoy this because you did a um, podcast episode about status reports recently. Morton Teokol did a weekly status report to NASA and one was specifically about the O-ring or the progress of solving the problem. And um, it starts with the heading is executive summary, colon, help, exclamation yeah. mark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. If you're reading that status report and you're not taking the headline away, man, yeah, that, that is definitely a breakdown in, in some sort of management. You know, something because, went wrong there. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, like I, I think I said in my podcast, don't bury the lead. And I, I don't think they buried the lead on that one. So uh, Absolutely. And, and I remember they did say in the podcast, you know, how they use these O-rings and they, they said that it wouldn't work well for this purpose because of the way it shifts and turns and whatnot. Just wasn't a good solution anyway, you know. Exactly. And, but yet they kept going. And then I think that's some of what a Feynman saw is or like it's this, this systematic ignoring of risk, right? It's sort of like, oh, well, it works well enough. And, and that's kind of the ultimate crime here, right? Exactly. And I just want to close with the final thing they found. They said because of not enough money being around um, and obviously budget for NASA had been massively reduced by then and there was massive brain drain in the organization right so their salaries were declining you know the scientists were too young not experienced enough the good ones left and that kind of obviously also you know shows the attitude the organization had the interesting thing is if we bring this back to our industry we have seen all of this right we've, we've seen clients compromise on cost we've also seen them and our teams as well in some areas where you keep on doing the wrong thing and we call it code debt that's what you end up with. Yeah. You're not yeah. solving the problem you should be solving. You're not solving the bottleneck down the line because it's just okay. And you, you, you find you never have the time to solve the bottleneck or yeah. you're telling yourself, you, you feel like if you take some time out to solve the problem, then uh, your, your final milestone will be delayed. But what we, what we do know is that if you solve the problem now, you optimize your flow of production down the line. If you don't, you just push this mountain ahead and the mountain will become bigger and bigger and bigger and you'll be later and later and later and you'll just increase more costs down the line. And I think this is a classic thing we see here. Yeah, and, and I, I mean, I, I think I want to also key off this high turnover point because mm. that's a huge one too. Because if you don't have that institutional knowledge and that knowledge sharing, then what you'll see is that, you know, you'll have a, a group of people and then they'll they'll have a, a bunch of initiatives and maybe a really good grand design. And then maybe those people will leave and turn over and then new people come on and they kind of are left with that notion of this grand design, but then they're going to redesign it themselves, right? Like every developer always wants to rewrite rewrite software that they don't know that they sort of pick up as legacy. And then they they run with it and they they start maybe going off in a little bit different direction and then they leave. And so you, you have this constant churn of initiatives and improvements, but they're never quite finished making those improvements and then new people come in and they're like well this is messed up and it's sort of like yeah yeah it's been messed up and we've tried to fix it in the past but we haven't been able to fix it because you have this constant churn and turnover so it's super important that you people happy keep people wanting to, to stay because that institutional knowledge is, is super important yes 
agree. And it's really interesting. So this is the second report, right? And here you, you feel like, okay, this is about cost. This is about organizational ignorance and, and not knowing how to, how to work properly. But if you look at the final report, so a sociologist called Diane Vaughan went through most of the 200,000 pages, apparently, which are in the National Archives and did her own kind of analysis. And what she found looking much, much bigger at, at this problem than anyone else is, is, is that actually what she called a mix of bad decision-making and the normalization of deviance. And what she means by this is that, you know, the erosion of O-rings, everyone knew it was a problem, but to your point, they're like, yeah, it's still working, so it's not a problem. And you just normalize the bad things and they just become standard and you plow on. So she says this meeting that happened with Motiokol and NASA, even if that would have been communicated upwards and widely in the organization, she argues from all the evidence she has is NASA wouldn't have moved the launch date anyway, and number of reasons. So there was political pressure. Apparently, Vice President George Bush at the time was supposed to attend that launch. There was a massive drive to commercialize space flights. So they were supposed to have 60 launches per year. And then finally, they were really worried about that if they said, we, we are not launching because of the low temperature outside, that this would set a precedent for other launches then also be delayed. And they're like, oh shit, if we do this now, then we've got this rule in the future. So again, they were normalizing kind of these bad behaviors and over time you just get into this culture of cutting corners or just just being very sloppy about how you conduct business because of pressures that come on from from the outside basically calls it white collar crime apparently do against better knowledge the wrong thing and that leads to kind of disaster i'm not sure what you think about this but i think it's an interesting yeah. one when i listened to the podcast i thought that was a, they were a little bit overly critical i think if space does run efficiently then you should be able to repeatedly of course repeatedly launch things in a very turnkey way that's what you're shooting for because it's the most cost effective now like the shuttle program is notoriously super expensive and it, yeah. that's one of the reasons they killed it it wasn't just the fact that the shuttles blew up but man it was super expensive to run you yes, know, it, was, yes. it wasn't the reusable vehicle it was it was sold to be right but I, but i think the big thing here though which i think they which was a fair criticism was the pressure of trying to do this too often Right. So like, you know, again, to bring this back to the kind of things that we see, you know, when you're asking teams to do too much. Yeah, that's, again, a risk factor that kind of isn't really uh, maybe acknowledged or appreciated maybe by upper management. There's like, why are they not getting this done? Let's get more. Let's get more in the pipeline. Let's, you know, keep doing it. Just push harder and harder and harder. And, you know, without really kind of having a, a full understanding about what impact that has on not only the teams themselves, whether they burn out, but the quality of what comes out at the other end. And going back to our discussion about high reliability organizations, this is why you have to have that mentality of getting quality into production. Yes. And that should be like everybody's concern from the top all the way down. Because if that quality is not getting into production, then if you just keep stuffing things into the pipeline, you know, you just don't know what's going to come out at the other end. And then you're going to have, mm. you know, a serious safety issue or you're going to have an incident in production when it's going to be very, very, very costly to fix at that point not only fixing bugs and all and taking that cost but a reputation damage and whatnot totally agree and i think it's also she says there were no rules broken it was just that the rules were very bad ones right and we see this a lot as well where we see either client organizations measuring the wrong thing so they, they don't measure outcomes they measure feature throughput you know how many features have you built but are they the right features you don't know or, um, you know, they have like a super heavy handed quality assurance or regulatory procedures in place. I mean, we've seen this right on, on one of the projects where we were, where we're like the way you're testing 
a lot of manual testing or manual auditing that doesn't do the job but they're like but but that's the the rules right we, we follow the rules it was kind of right by the letter of the law but not in purpose or in intent if you see what i mean right so, you know so you're doing it because it's a regulation but you're not achieving the outcome you want to achieve and i think a lot of organizations just need to rethink why they're doing things and are they yeah. is, is it the right way you're doing it to achieve the outcomes you need to achieve it reminds me of like i, I think there were some experiments with chimpanzees i think where basically what they did is they hung some bananas from the ceiling and these chimpanzees would go and try to eat them and when they tried to eat them they'd hose them down with water which of course the chimpanzees did not like so they ran away and eventually what they would do is they actually rotated out the original chimpanzee group that was hosed down with water with new ones and and as soon as somebody would go to go get a a banana all the other chimpanzees would freak out and be like (laughs) try to discourage them because they didn't want to get hosed down with water and eventually that got institutionalized <laughs> yes to the, to the point where it's like no no none of the original chimpanzees that got hosed down with water were even in the room but yes. yet as soon as some some chimpanzees would go for that banana they would freak out and i think that's kind of a similar mentality yes. here it's like you're, if you're doing something just for the sake of it every once in a while you got to step back and you got to say like why are we doing this and it's that retrospective action if the answer is that's just always the way it's been done that mediocrity it just drives me nuts like i hate that mentality of just like oh that's just always the way it's been done well that doesn't make it true or all right it doesn't mean you should do that way and again this comes back to that creative thinking and thinking outside the Challenging box ideas and yeah yeah so hey i wanted to share with you a final point from diane warren's report which i found super interesting she argues that nasa had moved from an organization of uh, scientists and engineers to an organization of project managers this comes with a number of problems um so they're frustrating to engineers because obviously they want to engineer and do science and not manage people and money and budgets. But it also, maybe more importantly, it changes the values of an organization. And specifically in the case of NASA to a culture of box ticking, as you can imagine. I mean, your points about quality, case in point, right? That That's exactly it. Um, the other problem is that if, as in the case of NASA, you end up as a project manager controlling a budget and teams have to compete for money, then they will not give you the truth. They will give you the story you want to hear, the lie that makes you give them the money, right? And this can become institutionalized and it's just goes downhill from there. I mean, we've seen this in our industry, right? I know of one consultancy where you cannot have a red flag in a progress report because it's just a career limiting move. So what everyone does is, well, it's orange now, right? So that's total bullshit. And in terms of everyone being a manager, the big software firms still have career progression path in many cases where a software engineer has to become a project manager to move up in their career. And why on earth do they think that there is any relationship between managing projects, managing teams or people is in any shape or form related to being a good software engineer? It can be related and a good software engineer can become a good project manager or a team lead, no doubt about that. But on the other hand, maybe the software engineer should just become a better software engineer. My personal bugbear, of course, is the one with the big consultancies where as a business analyst, you traditionally move up into your next career step is that of a project manager. And you're more senior as a project manager than a business analyst. What the fuck? Anywho, I just thought I'd um, share that with you. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And this is something that's come up in my past positions and even current ones where this sort of issue is when you talk about career ladders, you really need to create different tracks. So one's more about expertise within the discipline and another one might be a more of a management track, which people are suited to, but you shouldn't force people into one or the other. So a good example is you have a developer 
maybe they just want to be a really kick-ass developer and you need to give them the opportunity to be upgraded within that role of being a developer and not always like force them into being a tech lead, for instance, or go into some sort of engineering management. You need to have those different tracks. If you keep promoting people and upskilling them into management and then they kind of lose that flavor for actually doing the work, then some of your best people won't be close enough to the work and that's really where you need them most. And on the other side of things, I think it's really important to still keep your hand in the game as far as actually understanding the landscape and whatnot. So if you do become a manager or tech lead and you're in endless meetings, make sure you take the time out to actually, you know, learn a new programming language, understand your stack better, actually have hands-on development, etc. Or if you're DevOps, make sure that you keep up with the latest tooling and actually use it yourself because it just makes you a better manager, as you as said in the past in many podcasts. Listen, I want to talk to you about a final thing because I was, I was listening to all of this and I'm like, okay, we've got SpaceX now and they seem to be doing things differently, but I wasn't sure that is true. And I know you know a little bit more about that than I. I haven't looked into SpaceX really at all, apart from, again, looking at rocket porn and, and, and seeing like dual rockets land standing oh, on some barge. That, that was the most expiring thing I've seen in a long time. Having it, those it is. Dual it rockets is. land simultaneously. That was awesome. It is awesome, <laughs> right? And the question for me was then, I mean, certainly, you know, they're applying lean and agile principles, but are they doing things much differently? They are also under commercial pressures, but at the same time, they have a little bit of pressure off because they're not using humans to fly at the moment. So if a rocket well, explodes... Well, that, that's going to change in about two months. They're going to fly humans on the, on the Dragon. I'd like to say I'm not an Elon Musk fanboy, but I do have to say I have a lot of respect for him. He's one of the few people that's doing something that feels really inspirational and actually like forward-looking. So what is SpaceX doing differently and why are they kind of beating out the competition? And it's because they do actually have this agile mindset. So like, for instance, what they're doing right now with the Starship, which is going to be their big rocket that they're going to intend to take yeah, to Mars. Yeah. And like, you know, again, going back to our Apollo discussion, there's a clear goal here. The whole yeah. SpaceX thing, like all these other pieces, sending stuff to the space, space station and getting those commercial contracts and, and NASA contracts, it's all towards the goal of trying to get humans to Mars. And that's the singular goal for SpaceX. And it's not made explicit when you're watching payloads go up no. to the space station, but that's the clear goal. And a lot of that's encapsulated in this um, in the Starship development. So what they're doing in Boca Chica in Texas is they're quickly iterating over Starship design. So what they'll do is they'll, they'll quickly build, they'll weld together and build a piece of it and then do pressure tests and blow it up, use different materials, try a lot of different configurations in a super mind-bogglingly quick succession in trying to find the edges of the thing. In software development, this is playing spikes. This is yeah. like doing things where you have rapid prototyping, iteration, until you sort of crack the nuts and find the edges of things, you know, try to reduce the risk by, by trying to do it. It's not the production. You're not, it not, doesn't mean you're necessarily going to take all of it in production, but some of it you will, the things that you learn. And I think it's an interesting point you just made. My initial reaction was like, how does that look different to what the Russians did way back when? Um, and they tried to fly to the moon and they obviously failed. But I think the difference is that they didn't have the resources as the US had at the time. Um, and I think they were just going about it haphazardly in the sense that they were like, yeah, this will do. Let's launch this in production. Yeah, I think how SpaceX is different is they'll do this rapid iteration, which any other organization, think the big Boeings or McDonald's, you know, it would take them a lot of money and a lot of time because they yeah. try to develop everything up front and do a very water fall development. Whereas with the difference is SpaceX will do this high frequency iteration 
iterations. Yeah. And then once they sort of settle on a design, they sort of like get it 80% there or whatever. Then they'll start saying, slow down, take a step back and sort of saying like, okay, how do we productionize this? Yes. How do we make it safe? And then they switch to that high reliability organization mode where it's, they get obsessed about the refinement of the design to do it consistently over and over and over. And it doesn't mean they don't keep innovating, even with their Falcon 9 rocket. They land it. They can now consistently land those things and reuse them over and over. Now they're uh, reusing the fairings that protect the payload, and those will jettison off, and they try to catch those on giant ships. And so they're always still trying new things. But those reusability pieces make everything cheaper and it's good for everybody in the long run, but it doesn't compromise the primary mission of actually getting a satellite into space. They're obsessive trying to repeatedly do mm. correctly and all these other things make it cheaper and they iterate over them and they try new things and they're willing to do that. And I think they have a corporate culture where trying things and innovation and failure is acceptable. But when they're going to strap humans on in a couple months, they've gone through all the rigor. They've gone through all the testing to get the Dragon capsule ready for that. I would think that within SpaceX, they have the mentality like if this thing is going to fail, it's not going to be because of me. Yeah. The same same as the Apollo program because not only do is it risky for them as a company, but also you know, I think there's a sense of pride being able to launch American astronauts from American soil again. And you know, everybody wants that to go well. I mean, we could use some good news these days and I think that would be one really awesome thing to have. Yeah, definitely. Happen. So looking cool. forward to that. Yeah. So and, and any, any final thoughts on this? Is there any like uh, key takeaway that uh, you'd like to talk about as far as the space industry and how it can relate to software development? I think the key thing for me was how an organization that definitely was great at some point could quite quickly over well two decades basically degrade into dysfunction and it's very very hard to maintain high standards of excellence over time especially as you grow as you scale as you become commercial i think that is possibly one of the biggest things and it would be interesting to see now or it will be interesting to see where nasa goes now because i wonder whether spacex is so successful because they're, they're starting from scratch right so they don't have any baggage to take along but they can take all the learnings from previously and i wonder whether there is some learning for us in here as well with with our clients and how we build software and you know as the industry matures to make sure that it doesn't happen to us that we become stale and stagnant and then don't evolve or go or maybe it's just a natural i'm not sure what you think but it's just a natural thing that you go through these well, ups and downs yeah i i mean it is interesting i like i i want to think that nasa's learned definitely learned some lessons and hopefully they're they're doing things better now but i mean I don't know who knows because like their, their space launch system, which is their their next big rocket, you know, things are gonna be massive and take things to the moon and whatnot. Like it's already over budget and over time. Yeah. And and you know, you just gotta wonder. Like you know, I th I think it was it was a good move to bring commercial partners in and you know have yeah. because basically the idea there is that if other commercial clients are going to SpaceX to launch their satellites, it'll make it cheaper for NASA overall, right? Because that'll help subsidize some of this innovation and whatnot, and also it creates an industry and expertise that yes, Na NASA can draw off of. So the question is, yeah, have they learned their lesson? Or if you guys work at NASA, if anybody works at SpaceX, I'd love to hear from you. I really love to hear about how SpaceX actually develops their software and, and does that as well. So, yeah, um, definitely. That would be super interesting. That'd, that'd be a great podcast if we could hear from somebody. Great. Cool. Well, I mean, I still love space. I still think it's great. I'm going to keep watching it. 
I, I think it's super exciting. I mean, I'm a bit uh, cynical about the, or critical about the mass thing for a number of, of more like question the under, underlying reasoning. But um, in terms of technology, I think it's super exciting. And it's, yeah, I think the, the developments we've seen in the last five years, maybe, it's exactly what the industry or like maybe humanity generally needed, just approach this in different ways. For me, the, my personal takeaway is, is that hope thing. It, it's a, it, it really feel you know, it's like, do I need another app on my phone or another version of Windows 10 or another MacBook Pro, win, you know, iPhone, you know, 20. All that innovation seems so tapped out and incremental. And these things are like hopeful things. You know, these are yeah. like really solving real problems and you could get into entire huge discussions about the benefit of innovation and how that actually filters yeah. down the economy. Yeah. For me, Great. it's about the hope and looking forward. And I think that's what energizes me too when I work my day-to-day -day life. There's a lot of talk about how people join companies because of the mission and the, yeah. more so than the, the salary or maybe the role. Before we wrap it up, I again wanted to say thanks to Sarah and Michael from the You're Wrong About podcast. I hope you guys will check it out in times like these where much of politics and media have become an instrument of liars and questionable influences who want us to believe that the world is very, very simple. It's important to have voices of reason to challenge of what we think to be right and true. So do check that podcast out, please. Cool. Well, so we leave it there. We will. Yes. Thanks for listening, as always. And um, yeah, till next time. Take care. Bye. Bye. That's it for today's episode. Have a look at our show notes with related information and details on how to get in touch at thebarnup.com. We are listener-driven, so please do send us your questions, comments, and ideas for new episodes. We're both practitioners and are happy to discuss interesting opportunities from consulting to coaching to getting involved in actual projects. For inquiries, please visit burnupmedia.com. This podcast is produced by Burnup Media Limited under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 license, which means you can share it as long as you give credit, but you cannot change it or make money of it. Until next time, thanks again for listening and have a wonderful day.